Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Hi, everyone. Uh, We are in the process of doing a step workshop. Uh, I do not speak for essay as a whole. This is only my opinions and how I've done my steps and nothing more. Um, In summary, we're doing these steps not in the way many times people do them. Uh, For the first step, we actually emphasize that first week, um, not the first step, but the doctor's opinion, which tells us we have a disease, not a badness getting good, but a sickness getting well. And then we put up some links to the disease model and the chemicals that get haywire in our brain and where it's located. Uh, In the second one, we continued some on the first step, but for the second step, we only did the second part, proving how insane we are. Because how can you ask God to restore you to sanity in the second step if you don't believe you're insane? Uh, as I ended this yes last week's talk, um, I wanted to end it then, but I realized it was my resistance in talking about the first part of the second step, which is come to believe a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. Because talking about that power can step on people's toes. Because most of us have been programmed into what we think that power is. So down deep, I really didn't even want to touch the subject. Which means, since this isn't for you, it's for me. (laughs) To get in touch with the things I really don't want to do. (laughs) And so, we're going to first finish up the second step and then hook into the third step. Many of you do not speak American. It's not your, you might speak it, but it's not your first language. So the phrase, come to believe, many of you might not get 
the depth of those three simple words because in American, we have little language bits that bring it into a deeper level that I'm not sure gets translated into your languages exactly the same way. Now, the word come means to go somewhere. So, the first word is come. Come to us. We first have to come to the program before we can even believe in what the program's going to tell us. We have to show up. We have to arrive. We have to come to the meetings, to the program. Then we have an American expression called come to. When someone faints, when they go unconscious, get hit on their head and get unconscious, in American, we say they don't wake up. We say they come to, they come to, meaning they become conscious from being unconscious. So first you come to the meetings. Then you come to, you get awakened from this chemical intoxication that has been working on our brain for years and years. Most of us, since we've been 10, 12 years old, have had these endorphins shooting up in our brain where we're not even where we are a lot of the time because we're intoxicated, especially with sexual addiction where you don't have to be 18 or 20 to get permission to buy alcohol to get drunk. You can do it from your own brain. These endorphins, these natural opiates in our brain. So from a young age, we become intoxicated. Don't even know we're drunk. Don't even know we're not here. That's we're in here. So we wake up, we come to. Once we wake up, we have a chance of to come to believe. It's interesting, it wasn't written. We we believed a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. You would have thought it said we believed a power greater than ourselves. The past tense, no. It's we come to believe. 
meaning this does not happen immediately. This is a process we come to believe. So don't beat yourself up when you feel you're not getting it. This, it does not say we believed a power greater than ourselves. It's a process. We come to believe that a power greater than ourselves can help us get sane. It's this process. Now, how do we get to that process? We see other people getting saner. We come to meetings and we see other people changing. You can never tell unless you measure yourself against the wall You can never tell if you're growing taller unless you can look at someone else and you see you're seeing them from a different angle. So it's by seeing these other people become saner, we come to believe we could get more sanity also. And how do we get that sanity? How did they get that sanity? Through this power greater than me. Very subtle. Because the word God isn't used. So often we look at the words that are there, but we don't look at the words that aren't there. <laughs> like the words, we believed. <laughs> and we don't look at the word power and say, how come it doesn't say God? Well, historically, Bill W., the founder of 12-step programs, along with Dr. Baum, but Bill personally had a tough time with this God concept. He just had a back and forth with his concept of God and spiritual awakenings, and it shows up in this manner. So first, we're doing a power greater than ourselves. And this is going to be very important for the third step. Because what we're really saying in a power greater than ourselves is I'm not the power. (laughs) How can we not think we're not the power? We've been so juiced up on sexual energy, on endorphins, on 
dopamine on all these chemicals in our brain that we got through masturbation, through pornography, uh, through uh, prostitution, through sexual fantasy. So what happens when we're all juiced up in our brain? We get grandiose. And by the way, that's one of the three things in the 12 and 12 in um, step 11 that it describes us. It says we're grandiose, we're childish, and we're emotionally immature. The three characteristics of addicts. Man, does that have me down pat. I'm very sensitive. And I'm childish. And I'm emotionally immature and I'm grandiose. Just grandiose. I could do anything I wanted to. That's what all those chemicals did to my brain. So in the second step, we're being told, I'm not it. There's something bigger than me. Now, for most of us, that bigger thing is hard to be God at first. Because most of us have a lot of religious background. And we had been asking God to remove this for a long time. And nothing happened. So for many of us, this power became the group. God, a loving God, manifested through our group conscience. And without a group, a group of drunks, G-O-D, <laughs> that spells God also, a group of drunks, G-O-D. Without you all, without the group of drunks that I was with, I would have had a tough time getting this power greater than me. So the second step is easing us into the third step. Now, the third step It's so strange how the third step is presented. If any of you have your books, on page 60 of the AA book, in the after A, B, and C, it says, being convinced we were at step three. Lo and behold... On page 63, three pages later, it says we, we're now at step three. What's going on here? It says on page 60, we were at step three. And then all of a sudden, on page 63, it says we were now at step three. 
Well, it says being on page 60, being convinced we were at step three, which is that we decided to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understood him. Just what do we mean by that? And just what do we do? And then it talks nothing about step three. Not a word. Until page 63. (laughs) For three pages, it doesn't say a word about step three. What's going on here? Lo and behold, what is it between step, between 60 and 63 it talks about? It says, this is the how and why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. How do we quit playing God? We don't even know we're playing God. How do we quit playing God? And it explains it all on page 61, 62, and 63. The main one is selfishness, self-centeredness. That, we think, is the root of our troubles. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion and self-seeking and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. By the way, if you all haven't done it, it was very helpful for me to actually write down a hundred forms of fear I had. It says, driven by a hundred forms of fear, trying to reach a hundred forms of self-delusion, self-seeking. Take some time out if you can and actually write down your hundred forms of fear of self-delusion, of self-seeking. And you will see revealed how we play God and how difficult it is to stop playing God. It's all about me. Me and mine. I try talking a while without using the word I, me, and mine. It's excruciating to try to eliminate those words. I will do this. It is mine. Well, actually, we don't own anything. Nothing. We think we have money. Let the computers go down. We have nothing. Within a second, an electric storm could come up and all the computers go out and you need some money, try getting it. 
It's in your bank. It's in your checking account. <laughs> the computers are down. And yet we say, I own it. My body? Well, my body keeps changing. I don't have the same body I had when I was a kid or a few years ago. It keeps changing. I, my mind. And as they describe to us that we're like the actor who tries to control the scenes and everything. And my word, we fortunate to be living this past year to discover we don't own anything. We can't even own our face without being told to wear a mask. Everything we thought we could do, all of a sudden we can't do. What a gift to help addicts like us. My sponsor would always say, Harvey, everything is on loan to you. People in your life, people die, they move on. But our ego actually thinks we're in control of the world around us. So it's not easy doing page 60 to page 63. But what happens when we actually do it? It says, as we felt the new power flow in, we enjoyed peace of mind and we discovered we could face life successfully and we become conscious of its pre- his presence. We began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. We were reborn. How can we use the word reborn and not fall into the religious connotation? Very simply, when you believe in the disease model and you go through detox, your body experiences a death experience, your brain That's why it's so hard for many people who relapse or who want to try to get sober have difficulty getting sober. They can't go through the detox where they're getting a subtle death experience. But once you walk through that detox, once you walk through that death experience, where the body suddenly thinks it's dying without its drug, lo and behold, we were reborn. Then, (laughs) 
Only then does it say we were now at step three. Look at all this we had to go through. To now on page 63 say we were now at step three. So don't think it's going to be easy for you to do step three without getting a deeper understanding of my selfishness, my self-centeredness. That's how I have to work on it, my fears. (coughs) A lot of times I'll talk to one of my sons, they're all in their 50s now, and I'll say something to them. And I'll say, erase what I just said to you. It was coming out of my fear. Fear, F-E-A-R, false evidence appearing real. Fear is total make-believe in our head. What is true fear? When you're in the middle of the street and a big truck's coming and you're walking and something automatically happens and you jump out of the way. That's real fear. Everything else is make-believe. It's what we're projecting out. It's not real. So here we go, ready after really doing a self-look, hopefully writing some of this down. What are my hundred forms of fear? What are my self-delusions? What's my self-seeking? What's my self-pity? For those whose English isn't their primary language, in AA they say it um, for when you pity yourself, you say, poor me, poor me. And poor is spelled P-O-O-R, meaning you don't have much money or you're poor. Poor me, poor me, poor me another drink, P-O-U-R, poor. You stay in self-pity long enough, you're going to be drinking your lust again. You stay in gratitude, you have a much better chance not going into your lust. Self-pity and fear are such enemies of ours. So now... Lo and behold, it says we were now at step three. And what shows up? The third step prayer. Next thing's the third step prayer. But I want to remind everyone, the third step is not what it looks like. It's merely a decision step. You can't do the third step. 
You can do the third step prayer, but you can't do the third step. You to turn your life and will over to the care of God. It doesn't say that. It says to make a decision to turn your life and will over to the care of God. We tend to only see in sentences the words we want to see. And most of what we see is programmed by what has been programmed into our minds growing up. By family, by religion, by government, by culture, by society. So we get blinded to words. We don't see them. So it says we made a decision. It doesn't say we did it. Why is this so important? Because if, and I use this example all the time, if three frogs are on a wooden log in the middle of a river, and two of the frogs decide to jump off the log, how many frogs are left? Three. The two that made the decision never jumped. They just made the decision. <laughs> just made the decision. They never did it. How do we do it? By doing the fourth through ninth steps. So the third step is the door that opens to the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh, and eighth and ninth step. And immediately after this little two paragraphs here, it tells us to do the fourth step. But then two paragraphs of the words, we were now at step three. So they really don't write much about step three in the big book. <laughs> this is a decision step. What's the difference between a decision and a firm resolution? Neither is the action. How well we know it without New Year's resolutions. I'm going to go on a diet. I'm going to stop smoking. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Resolutions are easy. Decisions are easy. Not always, but actions are our fourth through ninth step. Right. Um, Israel, Israel, Israel from Israel, a good man and a sexual. Yeah, good person. I'm a sexual, yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Israel. I'm from Israel. I'm a good person and sexolic. Um First of all, I, I get the answer about the frogs. And for the very first time in my life, because it was three frogs, so 
so two decide to jump off and how many frogs it's now so it's five you know why because two to another frogs came also to make a decision uh the yeah just think about it uh the uh, <laughs> yeah the the question is uh, why it's so important to make decisions because it's uh, if it's so easy i mean why why we have particular step just for making decisions you'll have to ask them in the oxford group when they mm-hmm. did the six steps and bill's steps that he expanded to 12 steps uh but this is such a good question because one of my sponsors and I right before this meeting had a long long talk on this and um the danger of the word why most of us have learned to use that word this is a program of surrender not of wives and so few people in recovery tend to be able to do that the old programming is about why why is this happening why is god doing this to me why did covid come why was this good man good and he died young and this bad man didn't die why are there wars wise tend to avoid actions and lately i've been reading more and more in these spiritual oriented books that talk about questions a lot of times are ways we avoid surrendering to the answer we already know in deep inside of us so I value Israel's question because it's a good question I wouldn't have had a chance to say this but I was able to say to my sponsee um I just don't ever use that word in recovery for me I do the word thank you doesn't mean I don't have fears, I don't have insanity. I don't have crazy thoughts every now and then. But my word is thank you. My gratitude lives. If I stay in gratitude, I don't have to go into why. Why am I a sex addict? Why did I have to give venereal disease to my wife time and again? No. Thank you God. that I'm in the program and I don't have to do give my wife a venereal disease today what relief for me to let go of previous programming that's taught me that the brain 
intellectualism will solve all our problems, when in reality, the intellect was just made from the front part of our cortex to help it easier for us to do our instincts. Our survivor brain needed a more sophisticated part. And so my best thinking got me into the problems I was in, my very best thinking. And I've said on previous talks, my brain shares my IQ. So if I'm bright, my brain is as bright or intelligent as I am. My addict is as intelligent as I am. But it always wins because it always lies to me. So it's as bright, but it lies. Okay, next question. Okay, we have a question from from Elaine, and then we've got a few questions that have come up in the chat. Go ahead, Elaine. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, it's because I was struggling with the word selfishness. I, I read it the first time in, in this uh, chapter, you know, uh, um, step three. And it's now I know a bit more, you know, all about me. I'm thinking about what can, can, can I get out of it. Um, uh, I am the one who is hurt, you know, and always thinking about me. That's so much so that I'm not really get out of it and not really know that I'm selfish, you know, because I'm so emerged in it. Perhaps this is a word. But uh, can you perhaps, Harvey, tell me a bit more about it? How do you, uh, there are perhaps more details of it to get to know. I, perhaps you can talk about Yeah, I think a easy way to first approach it is within, after this call, this meeting, to take a little pencil and paper and see within the next 20 minutes how many times you use the word I, me, and mine. I write my um, sponsor each day. He asks me to do a reading and then my interpretation of the reading. And I called it, he would call it his, my thoughts or I'd call it my, uh, my take on it. I eliminated that word. I don't use my. Now, for months now, I've been saying, contemplation. <coughs> I'm not using the word mind. Very difficult to get out of that habit. Me, mine, and I. Now, the program does that for us. Because as you sponsor people, Selfishness tends to get less and less because our important, in quotes, day, my day I had planned, the this or that. But when someone calls, 
I stop what I'm doing to work with them. So I become no longer the center of that equation. So all of us are experiencing this through recovery. Okay. Now, my stuff, in quotes, was, Harvey, you're spending on your basic plan for Zoom. I want to play big shot and pay that $60 more a month. So I could say, I'm paying for it. I did not want to feel embarrassed asking for money, in quotes up. But how do we get around this? I surrender. I surrender. My fears, what will people think of me if I say that? Well, what you think of me is none of my business, and what I think of you is none of your business. And most of you aren't thinking about me. Our brains want to tell us people are really thinking about us. No, we're too busy thinking about ourselves to think about other people. And you've heard me say this. In AA, they say um, when two alcoholics in recovery are sharing with each other, you do not have a dialogue. You have two monologues. And for those who don't have English as their first language, it means people aren't talking to each other. They're just talking. I can't wait till the next one shuts up so they can say what they want to say. You go to conferences. It's almost impossible to talk to people at a conference because other people come in and just barge in and interrupt you and start breaking in and saying, I want to ask you a question. I want to tell you something. I didn't like what you said. You were involved with someone else speaking to them. But that's us as addicts. And we don't have to be ashamed of it. And we don't beat ourselves up about it. We just look at the book. It says that's our problem. Selfishness, self-centeredness. That we think is the root of our Troubles. Now, taking it into sexual terms, we automatically think if someone smiles at us, they're thinking they want to have sex with us. See, it's all about us. We're not saying, oh, they're smiling. I'm so glad they're happy today. We're saying, oh, it must be this. I'm here and they really want to have sex with me. Selfishness, self-centeredness. 
Next question. And talking about waiting to get a word in edgeways, I've been waiting for several minutes now, but my, uh, how, how my sponsor always, my ex-sponsor in your name always told me with regards to the third step is that everything that we put my or mine is, that's the bondage of self. Everything we put my or mine in front of. So when we say relieve me of the bondage of self, it's everything that I call mine. He always says that in your name. Um, okay, so we have a question here from uh, from someone. He, he said, I've been free from from any form of lust consumption for a month, but suffering from constant lust fantasies running through my mind unintentionally. What can I do to get rid of them? Does this undesired compulsive thoughts get in the way of my recovery? So I asked him, how does this relate to the third step? And he said, I am not sure, but I believe the solution comes from step three. I know I have to surrender all those thoughts to God, but I have no idea how to do this. Well, for me, it goes back to step one. And the word, I can't stop it, versus the words, I am powerless over it happening. Very rare do we hear people saying, I am powerless over those thoughts coming in. I am powerless over what I'm doing. People actually think they can control their thoughts. And then they shame themselves because they can't. And then the shame makes them go even more over and over again. I was fortunate to have Jess as a sponsor who would keep saying, the first thought is on God. That's how he made you. The next thought is on you. What you do with that first thought. And Again, I've said this before. There's a chapter in the essay book that gives 18 suggestions. I just so wish they would have put it in the beginning of the book instead of burying it in the back. How I overcame my obsession with lust. So those sexual or lust thoughts are obsessions of the mind. They're part of the disease. A physical allergy accompanied by a mental obsession. And there are 18 suggestions. I needed to find the ones that worked for me. You all need to find the ones that work for you. All 18 weren't good for me. A few of them were good for me, and they work, and I use them to this day. When that first thought comes in. We are powerless over that first thought. What I do with that thought is up to me. Am I calling someone immediately? Am I using those suggestions in that chapter, how I overcame my obsession with lust? Uh, as you all know, I've talked about it before in Nashville, 
we always had a bag of rubber bands hung on the wall of the meeting rooms. And unless someone was into S&M, where they'd like to hurt themselves, we would give them a rubber band so that every time they'd have a lust thought, they'd pluck the rubber band and it would snap their wrist and the brain hates that feeling and it would stop the thought. Done over a period of time, the brain doesn't like that. There are many ways to do that. The problem is that most people won't be honest with their God or with themselves. As we discussed in the first uh, week and the second week about being honest with ourselves, they don't want to admit they're not ready to live without lust. They're not ready. And it's okay. What's not okay is people lie to themselves. And they say, I, oh, I don't want this lust. They really do. They don't want to act out. Very interesting. Our membership requirement is very different than the AA membership requirement. The AA membership requirement says to be a member, you have a desire to stop drinking. In essay, it has two requirements. is a desire to stop, stop lusting and become sexually sober. Most people in SA want to stop be want to get sexually sober so they won't have consequences, but they don't want to stop lusting. And actually, inside themselves, they never become members. This is both those things to be a member of SA, not officially, but within yourself. A desire to stop lusting. And become sexually sober. Next question. Okay, the next question. Um, I pray to God just because others do. But deep down, I think it's a psychology. It's the psychology that's working, not God or any other spiritual being. The question is, is this bad for my sobriety? If it's working, don't fix it. Each of us have our own things. If it's working, it's working for you. If it's not keeping you sober, then it's not working. Try something else. This God stuff is very difficult. The next question is related to that, to lead you into it. Harvey, I think step three is where I ultimately got stuck. 
I guess I don't always want to do what my higher power wants. The problem seems to be that on some level, I feel as if I myself want lust and it's my higher power who wishes me free of it, so I fight him. Although cognitively, I know that it's I who really wants to be free of lust. How do we know what your higher power wants? The first thing is we had to stop, quit playing God. On your third step, you're not even close to your 11th step of praying only for knowledge of his will and the power to carry it out. How do I know what God wants? What egocentricity for me. And it took me years and years in the program to get to that point to realize who the hell am I to think I know what God wants. Now I'll tell you what you're doing for those who do it, including me. You were saying what your parents told you God wanted. You were saying what your religion told you God was wanting. You were saying what your government told you about God. But getting a God of your understanding, that's not easy because of those first five paragraphs in chapter five. We had to let go of our old ideas, but we don't even know what those old ideas are. And that's where sponsorship, the program come in. And that's where a meeting like this is so important because you get people from so many different religions, so many different cultures and countries, and you see the disease is the same. No matter what we believe, no matter what name we gave God, the disease, we all have these similar symptoms that convince us we have a disease. We're not bad getting good. We're sick getting well. By the way, if I'm 81, I've spent the last 37 years in 12-step recovery, 30, oh, 36 years and more in SA. I'm not going to be here that much longer. If there's ever a legacy I want to leave, it's the expression, we're not bad getting good, we're sick getting well. Everything else is secondary to that concept. To accept that I was born with this disease. I didn't make it happen. Most of us it had it since we were children. And that concept has helped me stay sober for all these years.
thinking I was evil and bad and God hated me and how could he punish me? That never worked. But once I embraced the disease model, I've been able to stay sober one day at a time for a while now. There was a question here about fear. Um, you said the real fear is when you're in front of a truck in the middle of the road and the truck's about to hit you. What are your thoughts on social fear, uh, which this person believes is the same kind of fear, but an abstraction when someone's afraid of being of doing something wrong that's going to lead them to being ostracized from a social group, making it more difficult to survive? What are your thoughts on that? I don't have much thoughts because... Sometimes social issues like that are related to social phobias, which sometimes are a separate medical condition. Uh, The concept of being ostracized is a very cultural program thing. It goes back thousands of years. Uh, The Biblically, the worst punishment you could ever get was being kicked out of your community. Excommunicated, put out, you were on your own. Um, So a lot of this, we don't realize are programs that have been programmed into us. Uh, It's taken me decades in recovery to see how little my brain was my own and how much was programmed in. Um, I give an example over and over. I might have done it here a few weeks ago. Um, My mother would say all the time to me, if you laugh in the morning, you'll cry at night. That was said to me so much that I believed it for decades and decades. And I was afraid to laugh in the morning. Those are just pre-programmed messages. Now, looking back at it, it made sense because my mother would go to bed two in the morning and want to sleep till 10 in the morning, probably. And so she didn't want noise in the house growing up. So she didn't want us to laugh. It would make too much noise. There's this, there are many stories like this. I won't go into the examples right now, where we have been so programmed and not realized that so much of what we're thinking is has been programmed in. There's uh, some wonderful books about this. Uh, it's called Attachments. And through our 11th step and mindfulness, we begin not to say, why is am I thinking that way? 
but to begin to say, where did that thought come from? Is it my original thought? Or did it get put in there? And some of these thoughts that get put in are valuable thoughts. They're good thoughts. And I could accept them. But I need to know they're not mine. They were put in. Some of those thoughts don't work for me. And I needed to let them go. Superstition is one of those things we've been programmed into. Don't walk on cracks. If a black cat crosses your path, you'll have a bad day. Don't walk under a ladder. Knock on wood, something bad might happen. You say something good. We are so inundated with previous programming. That's our 11th step as we get deeper and deeper into it. What's the benefit in writing out a hundred forms of fear? Soon as why? You had the question, Harvey? Absolutely. What do you think? And then I'll answer. Well, I think. Um, like most things on learning, bringing it to the light has some kind of power of dispelling all their myths. I, yes. I can't ask God in the sixth and seventh step to remove what I don't know I have. And I don't know I have it until I actually look at it. So fear is another drug. Uh, The big book talks about three main drugs in chapter five. One is resentment. One is um, fear. And one is sex. It's The only three they mention in that chapter. The three survivor instincts that get wild. Without fear and anger, we wouldn't have fight or flight. It's a natural instinct. But in our lives, it's gone haywire. It's gone wild. Natural instincts that have gone wild. I cannot know my fears. I just get the general word, I'm frightened. When I enumerate and see how many different categories it covers, I get to see how all-encompassing it is, very much like my first step when I had to actually write down how many times I masturbated, how many times I've had intercourse, how much money it cost me, etc. 
until I could see it, I could get, not get in touch with this is not what a normal man does. We're not talking bad man or good man, a normal man. I could not get in touch with my illness. So when I see my hundred forms of fear, and I think I was able to write down about 70, I got to see this is part of my damaged brain. I am not a normal man. I am a man who has lost his legs and can never grow new ones. Now, through the program, the paradox is once I embrace, I can't, I'm abnormal. I function, I could walk better. (laughs) I might not have legs, but I could walk better. It's one of those great paradoxes again that the whole program's based on. We win by surrendering. We keep it by giving it away. Spirituality lives in paradoxes. Spirituality lives between the words and the sentences. Wow. Mm. Okay, as I've shared before, if you want to hear a symphony, it cannot have just notes. It has to have notes and spaces. A note, a space, a note, a space. If you just have notes, it would be the English word uh, cacophony, just noise. So spirituality has not only the words, but what's in the space between the sentences. And also in paradoxes. How can we give it away but keep it? Yet we all know what that means. We've experienced it. So somehow writing down our fears, our self-seeking. By the way, I wrote down that hundred forms of fears maybe 30 years ago. It was only last year or two years ago, I said, Harvey, it says driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, self-pity. How come you just wrote fear? It took me 30 years to write the self-delusion and self-seeking. I saw words I hadn't seen before. That's part of the spiritual awakenings. They never end. We see what we haven't seen before. That's always been there. Next question. Thank you, Harvey. Uh, There's a couple of questions that have come up in the chat. 
Um, the first one is after admitting that I'm not willing to stop lusting, how do I get that desire? How do I become willing? That's ego again. I want to control how this works. That's what we said. We said, just get honest with God. He already knows what's on your mind. He know it knows what you're thinking before you think it. The big book says God is everything or he's nothing. What does that mean? It means there is nothing that's not God. So when you admit to yourself and to God, God, I really don't want to stop blessing and then be able to know that there's nothing you could do to make God stop loving you. Nothing. God is love. So somehow the process frees us to be honest with ourselves and with our higher power. And then don't worry about the rest. The way you're doing it now might not be working. Try this way. What could it hurt you? But don't try to control it. The more you try to control it, the more you're in your ego, which makes your God smaller and smaller. The next question, Harvey, is... um from Greg in Hungary, he says, does step three mean absolute surrender, a complete turning of my will to God in all aspects, or is it just for doing the steps? I it doesn't say any of that. It says a desire to do. It doesn't say you're doing it. You have a desire to do it. Made a decision how do you make that decision by, as we'll go next week, you do your fourth step. Then your fifth, your sixth, your seventh. And then lo and behold, by your 11th, your 10th and 11th step, without you even knowing it, you have turned your life and will over to the care of God. Now, that question is important because it reinforces the way we are taught not to see words. We don't purposefully skip words but we are programmed not to see certain words. And so we don't see that word made a decision. We only see, turn my life and will over to the care of God. And the third step prayer begins that process. Okay, you can ask the question now, Andy. Thank you. 
Um, to piggyback on the question before, uh, to not control it, I'm uh, fairly new to the program. It's really confirming, and I feel like I'm in the right place. I'm currently working step four with my sponsor. It's kicking up a lot of dirt, and I'm very shocked at how uh, selfish and um, self-serving I am. And in the discomfort of all this dirt, I have been uh, acting out. I'm in a plateau or loop of four days sober and then a period of acting out and so on and so forth as long as I take my step four. But I'm very worried in these moments. One, um, I suppose I need to stringently sort of walk through detox, chemically so. But my greatest fear is that I haven't hit rock bottom and I find that I am trying to control. Is me acting out trying to control it? Or is me resisting uh, that um, controlling it? Did I make sense? Yeah, Andy, um, this is only my opinion. I don't talk for essay as a whole, but I think you're doing an impossible thing doing your fourth step when you haven't done your first step. And it could be dangerous. And I don't need a response, but I'm just letting you know my personal reaction to it. The first step helps you with the disease model. Some people who are acting out during their fourth step. Number one, you're intoxicated. You're drunk. So you really can't. Some of my greatest experiences was when I was high on alcohol. (laughs) I could see all kinds of stuff, but I was drunk. Because this is a true addiction. And many people need to go to treatment centers to go through detox and have them work with you while you're sober on some of these experiences that are just too uncomfortable for us if we don't have some healing. And I'd be real careful. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Harvey. Here's a famous book from years ago. And this therapist, it was called, I think, Healing the Child Within. I don't even know if it could be published anymore. It goes back like 30 years. And he even recommended not going for therapy for the first couple of years until you get enough spiritual healing to deal with some of the stuff we come up with from our childhood. It took me four to five years to face my mother took a big bread knife and stabbed me with it. I wasn't up to using the word stab me. I needed some spiritual healing before I could face some of the dysfunction from my past. 
And the same thing I think applies that it's hard doing a fourth step if you haven't really completed your first step where you are convinced you have a disease, not a badness. And knowing that, that you are then willing to go to any length, which sometimes means going to a detox center, sexual addiction treatment center. Got to be so careful that AA and SA don't become religions where we say this is our only way. No, because the AA Big Book says, first of all, those first 80, 90 people always seen in the hospital for five days at least. It talks about it in the book. The second part is that Bill writes a whole section on some of us might need more. We might need psychiatrists or hospitals or whatever. So if you're relapsing, be careful. First, take care of your health and get through this withdrawal period. Actual withdrawal. Thank you for clarifying that. Thank you. Okay, we've got three hands up now. So we'll start with Sam. And we'll go ahead, Sam. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Harvey. Thank you so much for the time you put in sharing your knowledge. And uh, yeah, I don't have at this point a question on the third step, but um, since you said about the disease model, I don't have a real religious background. Uh, my parents were Iranian, but I was born and raised in Italy, but I didn't do even religion at school. So, and I was like, <laughs> I didn't have any religion, but somehow some ideas came into me. And despite the, the decade of ferocious atheism, uh, I, I still have this uh, feeling of being my own judge, jury, prosecutor, and also, of course, if I do it for myself, I tend to do it also for others. And uh, and now I'm finally, once I started getting spiritual, <laughs> I, I could see that the God cannot really be anything as bad or punishing or, or that kind of a God that, I don't know, typically at least from people from in Europe or also in the Middle East would think in general, on average at least. And, um, but still, now I'm trying, I found my, what, what I know is the higher power for me. But sometimes I get triggered a lot when, especially also in the fellowship, people talk about, oh, this, because that's evil or, or, uh, or, you know, they put in question that this is a disease because deep in me, something in me still thinks that, uh, that, uh, yeah, it's a part of it is, it has to be evil or something like that. Despite I don't have any, any belonging to any religion, religious denomination or things like that. But does it get away this feeling of, uh, does it fade away at some point, this feeling of, uh, 
believing so much because when I'm in the euphoric experience of the higher power with some weeks of sobriety, I I, I feel it sometimes. But when it drops, I start becoming more prone to bitterness and resentment and more vulnerable to different opinions of others. Does it uh, <laughs> does it become so solid and catastematic? I don't know. Uh, of so 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 solid. So as not to be to be able to be tolerant also of things that I think are not helpful not to me but also to the other people that say these things around me. Yes, there's one opinion you keep reading over and over and over and over until you can't stand to read the opinion anymore. It's called the doctor's opinion. Read the AA book. And you reprogram your brain. You become so convinced. And then you become so convinced that you do your own research. To see if the doctor's opinion was full of crap or not. As he wrote it almost 80 years ago. So you want to go on the websites looking under the disease model of addiction until you yourself can convince you that you're not going to be susceptible to other people's opinion once you know your opinion. My sponsor would say, Harvey, when you get more comfortable with your own religion, you'll get less frightened of other people's religions. And there is a misconception about, in my opinion, about sponsorship, that sponsors are there to convince you of something. Nah, sponsors are there to help you do your steps. You've got to do your own convincing and your own steps and have them help you with it. This is not a spoon-fed program. Because in this program, some of the best people with with sobriety could end up relapsing. So you don't want to be vulnerable. You want to be convinced within yourself. Okay? Let's Mike, two more questions and then kind of yeah. Okay, so Mike and then Marcus and then we'll wrap up. Go ahead, Mike. Hey, Harvey, this is Mike, uh, 22 yeah. October 17 from San Antonio. Um, the four and a half years I was just sexually sober, uh, my crazy disease still had me using the God of my past. And this last time that I've got a little three years over, uh, I really concentrated on setting aside my old beliefs of uh, my religious practices. And that really has helped tremendously. Uh, my question is, when I'm working with sponsees uh, in such a uh, evangelical atmosphere, um, they seem to uh, bring in God before... Uh, you can get to the third step, you know, and, 
And uh, as you pointed out, the first and second step, there's no mention of God. And but yet they're they're wanting to bring that in. And I feel like many times that's a, a hindrance, just like it was for me. Do you have anything to kind of share with that? I just mentioned it to my wife yesterday. Um, I've had to learn to speak many religions and many cultures, many languages. Not in reality, a language. I've had to try to not convince people they're wrong, but to utilize things within their own religion to help them see things. So I don't tell them they're wrong, because they might not be. That's being judgmental on my part. I could just say, this is my experience, strength and hope. But I also need to utilize their faith in other terms, like saying, do you feel this way about diabetes or COVID? Because they don't usually. They know God got vaccine. Someone to invent vaccines, and they know God did got someone to find insulin. But they know they're going to take insulin if they have diabetes. Just not pray to God to take it away. So you want to utilize things they already believe, which then gets you to what I shared with that man from Austria, Italy, about reading the doctor's opinion. Your job is just to bring them to the water, not to make them drink. Oh, what Sam, yeah. Your job isn't to make them drink the water. It's just to bring them to where the water is. And it's in the doctor's opinion. Once they see it's a disease, but they're going to rebel this, not because of the religion. They're going to rebel because they're addicts. And then where do you come in? You're an inventory. Your inventory of without knowing it, now coming from me as a non-Christian, I can say this all I want. Without knowing it, you're judging them for being evangelic Christians. You've already labeled them and assumed because they're evangelic, they can't understand the disease model. So that comes from our past and our prejudices. And so we end up winning because this isn't about convincing them. It's about my seeing my own stuff. We do it politically. We do it religiously. We have so many biases. We don't even know we have. Thank you.
okay? If I stepped on your toes, I make an amend and I ask your forgiveness. I didn't nope. mean. Nope, you, you hit, hit, you hit the nail on the head. My intention was to do that. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so last question from Marcus, please. Thanks, Daniel. Hey. Thanks, Harvey, for your share. And, uh, you know, my question was pretty much similar to the last two questions. You know, I, I listened to your speaker tape with Mike C. in Chicago from 2010, and this question was brought up. And you mentioned the 12th tradition about anonymity. And I was going to bring up my sponsee and how different he was than me, how his outsides were different. He's twice my age. He has a very strong conviction in his religious background, and he can't stay sober. And my question to you is, as you've already spoken about, it's not our job to convince the sponsee, but to help them work the steps. I'm obsessing about how I'm going to talk to this guy who can't stay sober and my thinking is, well, at least I'm obsessing about the sexaholic and no longer lust. So I qualify for Essanon and I'm in Essanon with the sponsor, but I'm powerless over sexaholism. So if you can talk about your experience with first sponsoring others and how it affected your emotional sobriety and how you put limits and boundaries up with sponsees who couldn't stay sober. Thanks. I'm, I'm not a good person to ask because there are people who no matter what sponsor their sponsees no matter how many relapses they have. I don't do that. I say to them, I love you so much that I need to let go of you. This what we're doing together isn't working. I don't blame it on them, but I say it's just not working. And if you noticed what I said to the man before about some people just cannot stay sober from meetings. They need treatment centers. And I share with them, you know, either see if another sponsor can help you more or you need to go to treatment, get some further help. And, you know, I'll be there when you get out. But I don't fool myself. Why? It's not about which way is right or wrong. It's about my getting honest with my personality. My personality is I'm going to end up trying to control this guy. I'm going to get him sober. Then I'm turning into God. So it's not good for me. I've done uh, inventories on my, my sponsorship. And that's one of the things. Another thing I discovered is I never had friends as a kid 
because I was either trying to have sex with them or I wasn't interested. So I didn't have friends. And that I had to realize my sponsees are my spiritual friends, but not my friends. And that they cannot fill in me what I didn't have as, in children, as a child. And so there's all kinds of inventory I've had it done with myself on this, this topic. Now, I know people in the program who have fantastic programs. Their personality, they could just keep sponsoring relapsers on and on. I'm here to give love to my sponsees, and I start getting angry. Why aren't you doing it what I say? Why don't you do this, do that? No, they don't need my anger. They need my love. And some of the nicest relationships I have with people in the program over the years are people I've let go of. And they've been able to do it with other sponsors. Or sometimes it takes them getting three, four sponsors to realize the problem isn't the sponsor, but them. And they're dealing with certain issues. But some people need treatment centers, some people need medication, some people might need uh, chemical castration. This is not a cookie-cutter program. There's one thing, if someone keeps relapsing, they're in lots of pain, and they need help, and my place is to tell them there is other kinds of help, too, and just not become a religion where just go to more meetings, more meetings, more meetings. Some people need detox and other things. So that's just my experience, strength, and hope. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.